Thing Bureau, every man in this village is a liar, and Education and War is her nominated book. Up next, Edwin Black looks at the dispossession of the Jews of Baghdad in 1941 and the alliance between the Mufti of Jerusalem, Haj Amin al-Husseini, and Adolf Hitler. The author speaks at the Park East Synagogue in New York City for about an hour and a half. I'm happy to appear here at Nahos. Uh, is my sound okay? The way we're going to uh, do this is I'm going to make my presentation. Then I'm going to take questions and answers. The first questions and answers I take will uh, have been submitted in advance by people around the world who were aware of this event but were unable to attend, whether they are here in New York or in Miami or in London or anywhere else. In addition to that, uh, after we're done with that, I will take questions from the audience on any topic. As usual, I will ask you for no statements, no speeches, just questions, so we can get as many questions as we can answered that are pressing and important to you on any topic that we can. Then after the event, I'll be in the back if anyone needs a book. So the topic we're discussing today is the Farhood the roots of the Arab-Nazi alliance in the Holocaust. What is the Farhood? The Farhood is a Nazi Arab pogrom against the Jews of Baghdad on June 1st and June 2nd, 1941. This was an attempt to exterminate completely the Jews of Baghdad and of Iraq. It didn't quite go off the way they had planned it, and it was just a terrible program, and um, I will explain exactly what happened. But the Farhood, the word the Farhood, is actually an iconic symbol for the Arab Nazi alliance in the Holocaust. Because how is it that a group of people that were dwelling in a land for 2,600 years, the Jews of Mesopotamia, of Iraq, a thousand years before Muhammad, came to be considered to be vermin, untermenschen, which is German for uh, subhuman, and were expelled from their own homes and subject to efforts to, uh, uh, to uh, perpetrate a genocide. How did this occur? How is it that the Nazis, who were anti-Semitic, made an alliance with the Arabs, who were Semites? What's a Semite? A Semite is the children of the descendants of Noah. Noah had three sons. One of them was Shem. Those descendants, including Abraham, were Shemites or Semites. So the Arabs and the Jews are of different uh, stems of the Abrahamic uh, tree. How, how is it that the Nazis, who hated Arabs, who hated Semites, were able to make an alliance against uh, uh, the British and the Jews. What was the purpose? Well, the purpose was oil. What was the reason? The, the reason was oil. Now we'll get into all, all, all of that. I'd also like to say that the Farhood, this one pogrom, was just one pogrom in one city. And after it, well, the alliance went into the battlefield from Paris to Palestine, from uh, intelligence operations to parachute uh, platoons 
to artillery brigades. This was not one Mufti of Jerusalem, but a mass movement of tens of thousands of Muslims. And these tens of thousands of Muslims were in a direct alliance of open genocide against the Jews. Now, I have to explain something. We're going to be talking about very sensitive stuff. My information is completely historical. It's the 20th century, not the 21st century. So nothing in what I say, as unhappy as it is to hear, should be used as a pretext to move against or have a, 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 a negative reaction against any of our neighbors. But I do feel that unless a legacy of hate can be confronted, we will never have a future of peace. And we have to understand that the legacy of hate that created the Farhood, created the uh, Holocaust, created the Middle East that grew out of the Holocaust, is in many ways with us today. Once again, it's important to keep this discussion completely historic. If anyone tries to draw me into a contemporary discussion, I'm not going to be drawn into it because I'm here only talking about the academic history. I should say that there were um, more than a dozen volunteers uh, um, in five countries who helped to research this book. There is a website for the book called farhoodbook.com. Farhood is uh, F-A-R-H-U-D. I have my own website at edwinblack.com. And there are probably more than a thousand footnotes as we reviewed thousands of archives. We reviewed the Yiddish press, the German press, the American press, the Arabic press, the Nazi press, the Nazi diplomatic papers, the Arab diplomatic papers, and we tried to do as thorough a job to vet the process. In fact, some of the people are, who helped me provide the book uh, to you are in the audience today. With that, I'll start uh, reading. And I'd like to get a copy of the book. Can we have a copy brought up? So when did the hatred for the Jews begin in the Muslim world? And why did it last as long as it lasted? Well, the history shows us, remember we're talking history here. The history shows us, just a moment. The history shows us that the beginning of the Arab hatred and the Muslim hatred for the Jews began in 627, when the Jews of Medina were exterminated by Muhammad. Medina, you've heard of Mecca and Medina. Medina was largely uh, a Jewish city. In fact, the word Medinat comes from Hebrew. There was, in fact, no Arabic at the time of the Quran. It was written in a combination of Hebrew uh, and uh, Syriac. The original prayers uh, bowing down were to Jerusalem. And after the Jews of Medina refused to convert, it uh, turned to Mecca. And the Jews were exterminated one by one by having their heads severed by Muhammad and his colleagues. Then came the uh, 
Islamic um, conquest of all of the Arabian Peninsula into the Middle East, into North Africa. This is the well-documented Muslim uh, uh, conquest. And that is how uh, the um, Muslim world became, is, uh, became established. Now, I'm going to remind people that this is a sensitive topic, and I want to talk history only, not, not contemporary affairs. My job is, his, is history. You, you will determine the present tense, not the, uh, and you will determine the future. Okay? So, the Jews of, of the Arabian Peninsula and the Middle East, when the Muslims took it over, became dhimmis. Not just the Jews, also the Christians. And this meant that they were a protected group within the Islamic world, but they had second-class uh, uh, second citizenship or third-class citizenship. They weren't allowed to have complete religious freedom, and this is important because this issue comes right to the question of the Farhood, right to the question of the Arab-Nazi alliance, and right to the question of our status today, right in Jerusalem. Now, it would be completely incorrect to say that the um, uh, Jews as dhimmis in the Muslim world were always kept as subhumans or as a discriminated class. Many Jews in many areas thrived greatly in the Muslim world. They were protected in the Muslim world. They became great merchant, merchants in the Muslim world. When the uh, Muslims exposed, excuse me, when, when the Catholic Church of Spain expelled the Jews in 1492, it was the Muslim world. It was the Sultan who took them in and who allowed them to thrive. And he took them in not to carry stones up to build a pyramid or a sphinx. He brought them in to thrive and to, and to make the uh, empire stronger. So there were many times when Jews were either horribly persecuted or, great, or greatly emancipated within the context of the dhimmi world. But whenever they excelled, they excelled as dhimmis. When they were put down, they were put down as dhimmis. There is no way to, to generalize. If you have a specific question, I will specifically answer you. Now, the Jews of Mesopotamia were there for 2,600 years. That's 1,000 years before Islam came to the Middle East. How is it that they were turned into a vile uh, uh, member of the citizenry? Well, the answer is this dimihood, this dimitude. The Nazis. How did the Nazis come to make common cause with the uh, Arabs? The answer is oil. There were never, there were never any uh, countries in the Middle East. They were all created by British Petroleum and Anglo-Persian and by other um, 
uh, oil imperialistic states in the West for the sole purpose of getting the oil. Prior to this, there were just tribes. As a result of this, this bringing in of the West with the uh, Mesopotamians, as a result of, of this, it made the people of Mesopotamia feel that they were being invaded. And guess what? They were being invaded. They were invaded by British Petroleum. They were invaded by Anglo-Persian Oil Com Company. I've written a second book about this, uh, which is coming out next month. Uh, the original way I got into the Farhood was by documenting the oil in the Middle East. The question is, where did the Jews fit into this? In 1933, excuse me, let me go back. In 1919, the Jews were given a homeland under the Balfour Declaration through the League of Nations. I don't want you to think this was strictly a British enterprise. The same type of Balfour Declaration was repeated by the Germans in the war. The same type of Balfour Declaration was repeated by the Ottomans who owned Palestine. The same, uh, document, the same type of declaration was given by the United States. This was a worldwide phenomenon. In fact, no one knew where Palestine was in 1919 when the Balfour Declaration was made. What was Palestine? Well, Palestine was actually renamed Israel by the Romans in 70 AD when the Jews were expelled. It was attached to uh, Syria. It was called Syria-Palestina. This was to wipe away the identity of the Jews in, uh, in Israel. Eventually, uh, during the 20th century, they didn't know if Palestine was a southern part of Syria, was a northern part of Africa. They still don't know. There, are no bound there were no boundary lines at that time. Even today, we see that there are disputes about who, there were disputes about who owned the bottom of the uh, uh, peninsula where Taba was. We see that there are disputes up in Lebanon. So in 1919, when the Jews were given, when the area was put into two states, a Jewish state and Arabic state, the Arabs failed to develop their own state. Why? Because they would not coexist with Jews in Palestine as equals. Now, when I say Jews, I don't mean European Jews. I don't mean Polish Jews and Russian Jews, although many Polish and Russian Jews were behind the settlements. Even Yemenite Jews. Any Jews could not come up and settle in Palestine from about 1898. Those who say that Arabs and Jews have always lived in peace in Palestine are unfortunately mistaken. In the last 150 years, from about 1898, maybe a little bit before, there was never a single day of peace between Jews and Arabs in Palestine. There were, there were laws against the Jews coming into Palestine, into Palestine. There were laws against Jews owning property in Palestine, and these were all under the control of the Sultan. Well, when the Jews got a homeland in uh, 1919 and 1920 as a result of the Balfour Declaration and, and Jewish National Home in the League of Nations, the Arabs rebelled. 
and there were terrible riots against the Jews. Now, when I say a riot against the Jew in 1920 and 1921, what am I talking about? I am not talking about people running up and down the street with large placards saying, Palestine for the Palestinians. I'm talking about people running into synagogues, burning Torahs, heads being cracked open, babies being killed, people being beheaded. And these are the facts. 1920, 1921, the British Mortuarial Reports say that they've never seen so many post-mortuarial head injuries as people were constantly bashed and bashed just because they were Jewish. In 1928, this came to a head. In 1928, the Jews decided to sit down at the Wailing Wall while they were praying for Yom Kippur. Everybody here knows what the Wailing Wall is. This is a, a remnant of Solomon's temple. This is the holiest site within the Jewish people. And because they tried to sit down, it violated Sharia. Now you remember, I told you, that Jews were considered second and third class citizens within the Muslim mindset. You will recall that I said that they had second and third class religious rights, or those rights given. The feeling was that if Jews sat down at the Wailing Wall, they were demonstrating the right to sit down and sit down without permission. The British were obligated to enforce the pre-existing status quo, and when little old ladies tried to sit down in 1928, the British policemen pulled the chairs out from under them to make them stand. Now, why were the Arabs so opposed to the Jews sitting when they prayed at the Wailing Wall? Because according to Arab tradition, the Wailing Wall is Abarak, and that is the uh, place where Muhammad hitched his horse, and his winged horse, on the way to heaven. You've heard of the Al-Aqsa Mosque? The Al-Aqsa Mosque means the furthest mosque. And when Muhammad was going to heaven uh, on a winged horse, he stopped at the furthest mosque, and the furthest mosque was in Jerusalem because there were very, very few Muslims there at the time during uh, these early years uh, of the seventh century. And that made this wall holy to the Muslim world. There were many uh, de decrees under the Ottoman court. Uh, as you know, the Ottomans owned Palestine for a half a millennium, for about 500 years. There were many decrees that stated Jews will not be allowed to sit, but Jews did sit. So what was the reaction? They said, do not do that again. In 1929, the Jews did do it again. In 1929, the Jews decided to sit down in the middle of the summer heat when they uh, prayed, and the Arabs reacted by going on a horrible riot. They uh, not only rioted at the old city, uh, at the Wailing Wall, by uh, pulling out the uh, 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 papers from the wall that uh, Jews put in to make a supplication of God. They uh, stabbed people, they shot people, but then while the police 
were busy in Jerusalem, they went up to Hebron, which has been a uh, Jewish city for, uh, uh, since the days of Abraham. They went up to, uh, uh, to, Heb to Hebron and undertook a horrible massacre of the Jews. Now, what do I say by a massacre? Well, I mean, and I'm going to have to talk about some very bad things here. So I'm going to do as I did in, um, uh, in, in my book. I'm going to apologize in advance for the history that I must give you. In fact, I'm going to read. I'm going to do some reading from my book, which is something I almost never do. I'm going to say, as I said in my introduction, this book is a nightmare. I regret anyone must read it. I regret it was necessary to write. The scholar had his head, his brain extricated and played with a football. The baker was baked in an oven. I'm not talking Auschwitz here, I'm talking Hebron. A visitor was crucified against a door. Babies were cut in half. People were stabbed. The police, in many instances, joined the Muslims. Now, I want to make it clear. There were many Muslims who saved their neighbors and hid them from further um, murder and, uh, and mass destruction. But it did occur. A state of siege was declared. The British brought in airplanes with machine guns. They actually shot into the streets to suppress the riots. And this was the condition of the Arab Jewish existence in Palestine in 1929 before Hitler ever came to power. And this particular monstrous massacre in a long line of massacres, in which this was not an anomaly, this was a high point of many high points. This occurred because Jews tried to sit down when they prayed. Now comes January 30th, 1933. Hitler comes to power. And the Arabs say, we want Hitler. They're not just fascist-leaning. They're actual Nazis. They petitioned to join the Nazi party. They, in various cities, I don't want you to think this occurred just in Palestine, in Jerusalem, this occurred in Baghdad, this occurred in Cairo, this occurred in, in, uh, in Beirut, this occurred in, in uh, Syria. They ran, they translated Mein Kampf. They redacted and changed the translation to take away the word Semite and turn it into just anti-Jew hatred instead of anti-Semitic hatred so it would not have an impact on the Arabs. They wore armbands. There's a, 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 a place in the book where uh, the, where the um, Arabs are with a huge Nazi flag. The Syrian National Socialist Party, National Socialist, just like German National Socialists was a Nazi party with a swastika. You can still see this right now on the Internet. Their flag has not changed. It still has a swastika. 
Pardon me? Syrian. SS, Syrian National, Social, Syrian, uh, National Socialist Party. And the Nazis said, we don't want you. You're Semites. On top of that, we're talking the Weimar Republic here. Excuse me, we're talking about the post-Weimar Republic. We're talking about the Nazi era. He said, we will never let you into the Nazi party because you must be a pure Ar Ar Aryan to be in a Nazi party. So they said, okay, if you won't adopt us, we'll make our own Nazi parties. And that's exactly what they made. They made many Nazi parties. And they made them all over the Middle East. They ran Nazi publications, and they serialized, in Arabic, Henry Ford's Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was a fundamental turning point for Adolf Hitler in his war against the Jews. And this treatise today, this fake protocol, this forgery, is still the best-selling book in the Arab world. In addition, the Nazis did want to upset the apple cart with the British. The British had the mandate for Palestine. The British had the control over German debt. And the Nazis wanted to keep Palestine open for Jews. Now, you remember I wrote the book about the transfer agreement, the deal between the Zionists and the Nazis to, that brought six, some 60,000 Jews to Palestine and millions and millions of their money. Well, that was actually based upon the Herzlian deal in 1903 with the Tsar, which was actually based on the Mosaic deal with the Pharaoh, to let my people go with the cows and uh, with the cattle and sheep and goats uh, to come with. The Nazis wanted Palestine to remain a Jewish settlement so they could force the Jews out of Europe, force the Jews out of Germany, and into this one place. And then when they were all in this one tiny tract of land, they would execute the final uh, uh, solution to the to the Jews, which would be extermination. And this was something that the Arabs were deeply involved in. And when I say Arabs, I mean tens of thousands of Arabs. And I'll give more information about that as I go along. I want to remember, I want to remind everybody in the middle of my speech that this is about history, nor do I wish to say that every Arab in uh, Palestine was unwilling to coexist with their Jewish neighbors. But I have to tell you something. I'll give you an example. The Nashashibi family was one of the strongest families in Jerusalem. But those who tried to coexist with the Jews, just like today, are marginalized. They're intimidated. They're murdered. They're ostracized. And eventually, the forces of hate, the forces of hate take over. Now, I talked to you in the beginning about the beginning of this being the extermination of the Jews in Medina in 627. Why did I do that? Was it just to find some historic problem? No. That is what the Arabs themselves constantly spoke about in their newspapers, in their rallies, on the radio. They constantly referred to the extermination of the Jews 
as setting the path for their future course. For them, this was an iconic moment. For the Christians, it would be the Sermon on the Mount. For the Jews, it might be the parting of the Red Sea. For the Muslim world, it is, in their own words, not for me to decide and not for you to decide, it was the extermination of the Jews in Medina. And when they spoke, when they recalled this information, when they recalled it, they recalled it not only within their own private little circles, they said it to Adolf Hitler personally, face to face, eyeball to eyeball. They said it on, on German radio. They, they said it openly, we must exterminate the Jews. Now I'm going to read something. Our hatred from the Jews, I'm going to read this. Our hatred for the Jews dates from God's condemnation of them for their persecution and rejection of Jesus Christ and their subsequent re rejection later of his chosen prophet. Verily, the wor word of God teaches us, and we implicitly believe this, for a Muslim to kill a Jew ensures him an immediate entry into heaven and into the august presence of God Almighty. What more can a Muslim want in this hard world? Now, who said this? This was not the Mufti of Jerusalem. This was not an Arab agitator in the old city. This was the king of Saudi Arabia. And who was he saying it to? Foreign ministry. An official protest of 90 minutes, which I quote completely in the book. That year was 1937, which was in the middle of the Hitler regime. As the Muslims are telling the Hitler regime, you are either going to stop allowing Jews into Palestine, you are either going to give us our own state the way we want it, which is Juden-free, which is free of Jews, or we're going to go work with the Germans. And that's exactly what they did. The reason I read that is because I don't want you to think that I've exaggerated. Some independent guy, some little guy, some marginalistic guy like the Mufti of Jerusalem. But the Mufti of Jerusalem was not, who was the central figure, was not the, uh, a marginal guy. He was the leader of the... Uh, uh, Arab, uh, the Supreme Muslim Council. He was the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. Who made him the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem? The British made him the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. He had an international Islamic following for his work. From India to Jerusalem to Yugoslavia to London to Beirut, everywhere there was communication and support for the Arab war against the Jews. Eventually, after the Arabs continually beckoned the Nazis for some form of alliance, it all came to a head when the Peel Commission in the late 30s recommended that there be two actual states. They said, we've tried for many years to bring these two peoples together. Now it's time 
to cut the country in half. And they said, we will never coexist with the Jews in Palestine. They actually said, better Britain should run it as a colony for 100 years than we should live one day with Jews as co-equals, allowing them to sit while they pray at the wall. Now, I have to tell you that 99% of what you read in this book is all quotation in context from the original Arabic, from the original German, from the original English, um, uh, from the original British documentation, uh, et cetera, et cetera, as we try to document carefully the roots of the Arab Nazi alliance. Eventually, the British began to see that their efforts to push the Jews out of Germany and out of Europe into Palestine was creating an actual Jewish state. Not just a settlement, not just a big prison cell with beaches, not just a reservation, but an actual state. And they saw that as a threat to the Third Reich because they believed in Henry Ford's theory of an international Jewish conspiracy. At that point, something else occurred. They realized as they were edging closer and closer to war in 1937, 1938, they were un beginning to understand that the British, who they hoped would join them in an Anglo-Saxon uh, uh, conquest of the uh, lower forms of uh, human life, was not going to happen, and war was coming, and when war would come, they would need one thing. And that one thing did not grow in London, that one thing grew in the Middle East, and that was oil. And the Arabs went to the Germans, and when I say they went to the Germans, they went to Adolf Hitler personally, and they said, we will give you oil if you will kill all the Jews, if you will recognize our state. They didn't mince words. I know, and you all know, that the Nazis like to talk about extermination and code, Zonderbehandlung, which meant gas chamber. You translate it, it means, uh, uh, it means special treatment. The Arabs made no such pretense. They said, kill the Jews wherever you find them. Kill a Jew before he kills you. And this wasn't whispered. This was on the radio, night after night, broadcast in, uh, in, in, internationally. How does this make its way up to the Farhood? Well, the Farhood was in 1941. By this time, the, um, the uh, World, World War II was in, was, was in full swing. And at this point, the, the Nazis had decided to launch Operation Barbosa to invade Russia. They couldn't get it. They couldn't get there without oil. The oil in Romania was, that they had used was insufficient. Arabs said, we will give you the oil, we will give you the oil of Iraq, we will give you the oil of Iran, we will give you all the oil we have if you will declare for an Arab state. And Hitler said, I will declare for an Arab state and finish the Jews when I cross the Caucasus Mountains. So it was everything the, Nazi, the Arabs could do to make that come to pass. At a point in time, in, in the spring of 1941, the uh, Jews of Baghdad were on edge. They had lived there for 2,600 years, but they knew that there were many Arab Nazis. Now, when I say an Arab Nazi, 
I'm not talking about a guy running around with a swastika armband. I'm talking about Hitler Youth in Arab lands. What do I mean by Hitler Youth? I mean actual hundreds and thousands of young Iraqi Jews who went to Nuremberg, who went to Germany to march in torchlight parades, who taught Nazi... Iraqi Arabs, excuse me, uh, Iraqi Arabs who went to Germany, who brought their concepts back, who organized along a German basis, and who considered themselves actual Nazis. In fact, I need to tell you that the second most popular name for a young child in the Arab world was Hitler. In fact, um, you could today see some people on the internet, Arabs whose name is Hitler. I'll give you an example. Uh, you can uh, look at Google a man by the name of Hitler Tantawi, T-A-N-T-A-W-I. He's just an ordinary civil servant in Egypt in charge of efficiency. His name is Hitler. They had a little theory going on that Adolf Hitler was not born in Austria, Adolf Hitler's actual real name was Mohammed Hadar. He was a little Egyptian boy. He had visited all the mosques of Egypt, and uh, he was the, uh, the new savior of the Arab people. In fact, the posters in the marketplace said, in heaven, your master is, is Allah. In, uh, on earth, your master is Adolf, Hit is Adolf Hitler. So in 1941, in June, June of, uh, just before June 1st, uh, there was a decision to totally exterminate the Jews. They were told to um, go into their homes, shut the homes, stay off the phone, turn off the radio, and pack their bags for three days. You all know the scenario. Due to a last-minute, I'll, I'll use the word rescue, by one of the Arab leaders, who was in good relation with the Jewish people there. He uh, expelled the chief Arab Nazi who was doing this. And at that point, because the um, um, extermination effect had failed, there was a mass riot of Iraqi military men, Iraqi police, and Arab Nazis running all over the streets from June 1st to June 2nd of 1941, killing hundreds of Iraqi Jews. What am I talking about? I'm talking about women being raped in front of their parents. I'm talking about parents being raped in front of, uh, being murdered in front of their kids. I'm talking about babies being sliced in half and thrown into the river. I'm talking about homes being invaded and people running up to the rooftops and jumping from rooftop to rooftop to be escaped, to, uh, for escape. And this was done with the full knowledge of the Nazi government. They had actually given money. They had sent aircraft in to, to uh, support an operation uh, just uh, a, a few days before. And the chief Arab uh, ag uh, agitator from the uh, Berlin government, Groba, had his office there. And they were uh, working with the Mufti of Jerusalem. And they were making this pogrom in order to kill all the Jews of Baghdad. But it didn't work. And it is because it didn't work, it's been labeled 
a pogrom. It's been labeled farhood. What does farhood mean? It means violent dispossession in Arabic. And that is a word we barely have in English. And so they use, they use one word. Now, there's not a Sephardic Jew in the United States or in the world listening to me who does not know what farhood is. There are many people in this room who have worked with me to bring this information out. It's been suppressed because they wanted to pretend that the war against the Jews had a bright line a little bit north of the Middle East. That is not the case. The war against the Jews was not just a war against my parents and your neighbors and you in Poland, but all Jews. The British did not intervene in this monstrous massacre. Where were the British? They were just outside of town, outside of Baghdad. Why were they there? They had one job, secure the oil. And they did secure the oil for British Petroleum. And they said, if we don't secure that oil, if the Nazis get that oil, they will be unstoppable. Well, the Nazis did not get that oil. Eventually, the pogrom was stopped because someone had the courage in the Iraqi government, which was changing form from minute to minute, to call out guards and suppress the agitation. Thereafter, the Arabs changed their tactics and said, we will no longer work with um, just uh, urban riots and, and uh, mass mayhem in the cities. We'll help Hitler do what he wants to do, cross the Caucasus Mountains, come around and exterminate the Jews of Palestine. How? Well, first of all, we'll make common cause with the Iranians. What, is, what does the word Iran mean? The word Iran means Aryan. They are the true Aryans. The name was changed from Persia in 1935 to invoke the ancient, well-entrenched name of Iran, Aryan, as a salute to a massive Nazi-dominated Iranian infrastructure. So after the uh, uh, British took over the oil wells, secured them, that they'd had for decades, in, um, in Iraq, uh, for years, not decades, they then moved into Iran, expelled the Shah, brought in the man that you know as the Shah of Iran, and kicked out 2,000 Nazi um, uh, um, agitators and military men and um, uh, advance units that were creating railroad systems, trains, all sorts of infrastructure uh, ev events to cut Iran off to, from the West, to cut the oil off from the West, and to give it exclusively to Nazi Germany. After that, the Arabs said, okay, we're going to switch to the battlefield. They recruited not one Muslim fighter, not 100, not 1,000, but tens of thousands. Three S Waffen SS divisions. The first was Hanshar, the second was Sanderbeg, and the third was Kama. And the ones, and they worked mainly in Yugoslavia. Anyone here from Yugoslavia? No, but we've 
them in, in Europe. Okay. With the feathers, they wore feathers. They wore feathers. Now, let me tell you what happened in Yugoslavia. I want you to, uh, again, accept my apology in advance. What happened in Yugoslavia was a, a manifold greater genocide than what happened in Auschwitz. They formed, the Muslims formed, with the Catholic, with the Catholic Church, a binational group, a binational genocidal group called the Ustashi. You don't hear about this much, but the Ustashi were the single deadliest, most bloodthirsty killers in the entire World War II era. What am I talking about? Well, it's awful. I'm talking about a prison camp, Jasinovich, where there was a contest between the guards on how many throats could they slit in one night. One guy slit 1,350 throats, and he won. The next guy did 1,100, he came in second. Another guy did 650, he came in third. We've documented all of this stuff. Who organized this? The Mufti of Jerusalem and the Nazis. I'm talking about actual trench warfare. I spoke to a, to a man here who said he was in the partisans. And they fought against the partisans in Yugoslavia. Thousands of them, artillery brigades, para, paratroopers, infantry. This was not just a bunch of people rabble-rousing in the street. This was not just a bunch of people on the radio. This, were people, this was a group helping Hitler wage his war against humanity. It's very difficult when you talk about Yugoslavia because you have Serbs, Greek Orthodox Church, Catholics, some Jews. You have Muslims, Bosniak Muslims. And the alliance was changed by the minute, by the hour. It was a murderous mix, and we've seen it today in that same part of the world. But the truth is that the worst crimes of the Holocaust were committed by this Muslim-Catholic alliance as um, clients of the Nazis in, Yugo in Yugoslavia. Eventually, <coughs> Hitler lost the war. But the Holocaust stopped in May of 1945, but then it continued in the Middle East as all of the uh, infrastructure that had been put into place by the Arabs to make common cause with the Nazis to destroy the Jews now came into their own Middle East countries. They invaded Israel, and they invaded not to restore Palestinian rights, not to restore their land, but, quote, to exterminate the Jews. They even used the reference to Genghis Khan. You know, they had a, a phrase. And this phrase was invented in the 1920s. Not in the 1930s, not in the 1940s. Palestine, Bladna. Palestine, Bladna. Palestine is our land. They would run down, up and down the streets, and they would scream, 
Palestine, Bladna, Palestine is their land. But it was actually a rhyme. Here's the second half of the rhyme. Palestine, Bladna, Al-Yahud, Klabna. Palestine is our land, the Jew is our dog. This was not in 1945, this was in 1920. This was, in 19, this was not 1939, this was in 1920. This wasn't once, this was a regular chant. And I'm trying to give you the mindset, the roots of the Arab Nazi alliance in the Holocaust. And so all these guys whose names were Hitler and all these guys whose names were Adolf found common cause after World War II. In fact, some 2,000 Nazis, prison guards, Gestapo, SS, migrated into the Middle East, into Egypt. To Egypt. We have their names in the, in, in the book for the sole purpose of waging war against Israel with propaganda, with boycott disinvestments and, and, uh, san and sanction, with um, military maneuvers, wars, the Independence War, the War of Independence in 1948, and all the other wars that came to pass. Arab ma Nazi masterminds, when I say Nazi, I mean German masterminds, were working behind the scenes and indeed in the front on their Arab names, bringing this to reality. Now, what does this mean for us today? Well, we have to look today, when we see a guy called Muhammad Abbas, Mahmoud Abbas, who says, I will never recognize Israel as a Jewish state. They can call themselves anything we want. This harkens back to the concept of we will never allow, we will never uh, allow ourselves to coexist with Jews in Palestine. Now, you may say, why didn't you mention this and why didn't you mention that? I didn't mention about 99% of everything that's in the book. And the book only men didn't mention 99% of everything we could have done because every chapter we did in the book has, uh, uh, could have been a book unto itself or perhaps a small bookshelf of books. But I did endeavor to give clarity to how it is, from their perspective, the Arabs were able, able to form an alliance during the Holocaust with the Nazis, how it nurtured itself over 1,400 years, how it played out during the war, and how it continued after the war in the 20th century. And as you know, the 21st century is owned by the 20th century. Why did it happen? No oil, no Iraq, no British petroleum, no need for Middle East wars. It was oil. No one ever went to Mesopotamia to Iraq because they enjoyed the sand. It was only what was underneath the sand that brought them. And that is what the uh, Arabs and the Muslims of that world, world reviled. And not just the Muslims in Palestine, not just in, in Iraq, in Iran, but also Yugoslavia, India, London, etc. What is the message here? The message is that we want to use this information as a truth and reconciliation so we can understand how we got here.
do not misuse my information to recreate uh, a new legacy of hate, but use it to confront a legacy of hate so we can move forward with all people in the Middle East to create a future of peace. The Germans and the Jews have reconciled. Never forget, but their, co their, co their coexisting is allies. And that began, believe me, in June of 1945, if not before. It is possible. It is difficult. It is difficult when it's not 13 years as it was for the Third Reich, but 1,400 years. But with this information, I hope to arm you with what you need to understand our present, understand our past. Thank you. And now I'll take questions, but uh, first I'm going to take some remote questions, which have been given to us in advance by various people around the country and overseas. Uh, the first question, and then I'll take questions from the audience. Um, how much time do I have? As much as I want, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, here's a question from a guy called... Uh, Mitch DeBach at the University of Miami, who studies Middle East history. Uh, he talks about the fact that um, uh, the book documents, the exp uh, which I did not mention, that the Jews were expelled from Arab lands. About a million Jews, just a little less than a million Jews, after World War II, were expelled uh, from, German, uh, uh, from Arab lands into Israel. All their money was taken. They emulated the Eichmann uh, program, and it says, um, do I support current efforts of Israel's foreign ministry to include in, fu in future peace talks when addressing the issue of refugees, the case of 800 to 900,000 Jews of Arab lands? Staying out of contemporary affairs, I will tell you that at the time that this occurred, a half a century ago, the Israeli foreign ministry said, we will have to keep this in reckoning, the dispossession of the Jews from Morocco, from Libya, from, from Iraq, from all, from all these different con, con, uh, countries in our um, uh, balancing of peace, justice, and reenfranchisement re uh, in the Middle East, in Israel. There is no question, there are people in this room today who work every day to argue for the return of property. I know that uh, Leo here and many others are looking for the returns of their property in Poland, in Czechoslovakia, in Germany, uh, in uh, parts of Russia. There are many Jews in the Arab world who were left penniless. What do I mean by penniless? They took them out, they pulled the rings out of their ears. They took the bracelets from their uh, uh, arms and they did everything possible to leave them penniless. Why? Because the Arabs thought we don't have the manpower to kill all the Jews and we don't wish to now, although they did have concentration camps in North Africa. We don't have the manpower to do that so what we will do is we'll create a demographic bomb. We'll flood a million Jews into Israel. They won't know what to do with them. They'll be on the beach and Israel will collapse. That did not occur. Arabs were kept in, in refugee camps for decades. The Jews were, re were uh, absorbed into Israeli society 
immediately. And as you all know, who's running the uh, Israeli government today, uh, one way or the other? It's, um, in many instances, Jews of, uh, um, uh, who came from Arab countries. So they, they, they were not marginalized. They were not left to die on the sand. So this is a historic truth that you must acknowledge what, is, uh, ha what happened to a million Jews who were in the middle class and the upper class, who were in the established mercantile class in the government, who were expelled penniless. A second question here comes from Miami, was submitted by email. How does, uh, let's see, it, it talks about, um, in light of what you have discovered about the Ustashi, the Muslim Catholic Alliance, um, uh, that murdered tens, tens and tens of, of, of Jews and, Ser and Serbians and also Muslims. Many Muslims died uh, at their hand. Um, how does this relate to our understanding of recent international events involving Kosovo and all of this? Well, I can't tell you how complicated Yugoslavia is. I can't tell you how many uh, partial countries, temporary countries, territories, dukedoms, uh, Kosovo, Bosnia, Albania, they all came and went, they all came and went. They had different alliances to kill each other. Um, the um, Catholics at one point decided that all the Muslims were going to be honorary Catholics or honorary Croatians, and they formed the Eustachi. Yes, we should always understand, always understand that whatever we have today did not appear suddenly. It is a legacy. Here's a question, and this comes from Lester, Frank, Lester M. Frank from Los Angeles. How does any of this relate to the BDS movement, the so-called boycott, disinvestment, and sanction movement? against Israel. We hear about this all the time. What are the historical roots of this movement? Well, you hear about this boycott Israel thing. When did this start? This started in uh, January 30th of 1933, actually April of 1933, when the Mufti of Jerusalem went to the Arab consulate in Jerusalem and said, we're ready to join the Nazi boycott against the Jews. And from that, it percolated as a continuous effort to deny identification to, legitimacy to, and commerce with the uh, uh, Jews in Palestine. It got so bad that uh, in the latter 30s that if a Jew, uh, that if an Arab taxi took a Jew across town, that Arab taxi driver could be killed. So the BDS movement is absolute. The one we see today is as much a legacy of the Arab-Nazi alliance of hate as anything else that I have discussed. And now, do you have one? Here is a question from London from an Iraqi Jew. My question is, was the Farhood premeditated or spontaneous? This is from Lynn Julius of London. Lynn, Lynn Julius. Was it premeditated? The answer is yes, it was absolutely premeditated. It did. It didn't work out the way they wanted to. They didn't exterminate all the Jews in concentration camps or gas chambers. So they did the next best thing. They killed every Jew they could get their hand on, and they killed them as viciously as humanly possible.
And now I will take questions from here. Uh, there's a mic here, and let's go with this woman first. Can everybody hear, hear me okay? Thank you, Mr. Black, for this extraordinary panorama of the Arab-Muslim uh, uh, Nazi alliance and for drawing for us the continuity of this issue from Thank you. way back. What is your question? My question is simply very simple. Uh, I've always heard that the Grand Mufti was instrumental in all these events, and I would love it if you could give us a few more details about the persona of this man. The Grand Mufti of Jerusalem was, um, uh, uh, was made a Mufti by the British, and then to make him a bigger Mufti, they made him a Grand Mufti. And he was put into power for the sole purpose of keeping the uh, um, uh, Arabs of Palestine into some kind of tranquility, and the reason for that was they were trying to build at that, at that time and ultimately did build a pipeline from Iraq to Haifa to bring all the British petroleum uh, oil to the, um, uh, to the Allies and to the Western world. Now, British petroleum's name at that time was not called uh, British petroleum. Was called Ang it was called Anglo-Persian and many other names. So the Mufti of Jerusalem had a shadow government he, he was given virtual auto autonomy. He was on the British payroll. He had uh, his, own, uh, his own infrastructure, and he had control over the Western Wall. He had control over Al-Aqsa Mosque, and he was a huge agitator, and it was typical for him to uh, speak in front of the microphone and say, I want everybody not to, to engage in any kind of violence, and then in the side, he would say, kill the Jews, kill them where they are. So it was speaking with two different voices, one for the Western world and one for the Arab world. This is a tradition that goes back to the Mufti, and we've given all of these, this information in, in the diplomatic cables, in the Arabic cables. We tried our hardest to quote the Arabic um, communications at the time. So... The Mufti of Jerusalem was devious. He um, uh, uh, was part and parcel at the highest level with uh, the Hitler regime. He met with, Hit he met with Hitler in his, in his office. He was on the Hitler payroll. He was um, given, he, he was elevated by Hitler. And when I say he was with Hitler, I don't mean that he was just uh, meeting in a dark shadow. They had newsreels. In fact, the Mufti of Jerusalem went to concentration camps. He went to Sachsenhausen. He went to the place where all the concentration camps, Iranianburg, were uh, organized. He went, uh, we believe, to a subset of uh, Auschwitz. And whenever they tried to rescue Jews, the Mufti of Jerusalem would send um, uh, uh, irrepressible letters to the Hungarian officials, to the Polish officials, saying, don't, uh, not to the Polish, to the Hungarian, to the Bulgarian, saying, don't send the Jews to Palestine, send them to Poland. Okay? Now, if you think that uh, nobody knew what Auschwitz was in uh, 1941, excuse me, 1942, 1943, let me correct you, because a little girl in an uh, in attic in Holland confirmed in her diary the Jews are being gassed in Poland. The BBC was broadcasting this, and I have reproduced the exact language 
of a book published by the AFL-CIO worldwide in numerous languages, including the United States, explaining that Auschwitz is a death camp where they put gas in the cellar. This was very well known. And so when he said send them to Poland, he knew what he was doing. Thank you very much. I hope I've answered your question. Now the, sec now the second question comes from here. Go ahead. Uh, the question is, what now? You know, you, 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 hint, you hinted before when you ended, you, uh, where do we, t who do we turn to? Because in, in, in Europe, when we saw the Ustashes coming to, uh, they, uh, the Bosnian Muslims were coming with wearing fezzes in, the, in Warsaw. I saw them personally in Warsaw with the Totenkopf on their fezzes. There was a whole regiment of, of uh, and coming, moving forward, we had our government, the American government, send bombs on the Serbians. The Serbians uh, had Mikhailovic or Mikhailovic, uh, but where okay. do let we... let me try to answer the question. Yes. Um, yes, the, as I've explained, the Muslim forces of the uh, Third Reich, who were not just independent militias, they were uh, Waffen-SS units, were dispatched all over Europe in various uh, formations for various tasks, although they were mainly cen centralized in, uh, in um, uh, Yugoslavia. They were trained in France. Um, your question is, and you know about this from personal experience because you saw, you saw them. What do we do now? That question will not be answered by me. That question will be answered by everyone who hears you. I have given you the history of how we got to this. I will not talk about 21st century policy, but any 21st century policy which is attempting justice must look back on the true facts of, his, of, 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 of history. There were many, uh, there was enough bloodletting in Yugoslavia to write volumes and volumes. And unfortunately, um, um, what our government does now in the Middle East, in Yugoslavia, etc., is up to a sense of justice in, his, in history. And you, and you will decide what that is and not me. Thank you very much for... Excuse me, you said for lack of knowledge? Yes. I hope I addressed that in this book and in this conversation. Uh, now I'm going to take a, a, a one question from this side, please. I hear you say that the Mufti was on the British payroll? Yes, the Mufti was getting something like 60,000 uh, pounds a year uh, on the British payroll. And when he left the British payroll, he went to the Nazi pay payroll. Uh, prior to World War II, of course. Now I'm going to take a question from this gentleman here. His name is Shlomo Al-Fasa, and uh, Shlomo uh, is with uh, um, Jews for, uh, Justice for Jews from Arab countries. He's intimately familiar with this knowledge. What's your question, Shlomo? Um, I had a personal question. Um, the U.S. Holocaust Museum, uh, as we both know, um, was not very uh, keen to discuss this topic uh, five years ago. Can you tell me that if in the last few years um, they're still not talking about this topic or have they addressed it? Okay. The question is whether or not the U.S. Holocaust Museum has consciously obstructed information about this topic. Well, the answer is, of course, yes. 
and many people in this organization of survivors know how difficult uh, it has been to get the management of the museum to be truthful and cooperative on many issues. Uh, in the, um, I believe it was five years ago that there was an attempt to get recognition of the Farhood. This man was involved, many other scholars were involved, and the Holocaust Museum uh, put a stop to it by sending out emails to, to all the other Holocaust museums because their narrative was that the, um, that the uh, Holocaust experience, Hitler's war against the Jews, was a European experience. I'm sure you all know the Hilberg book, Destruction of the European Jew Jewelry. But that does not mean that just miles south of there, that Jews were not destroyed in Belgrade, which was, of course, the uh, first uh, 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 Jew Jewish free city, uh, Judenrein, that they were not horrible concentration camps in the uh, north of Africa. I always have to say that many Jews who survived the Holocaust in North Africa did so because their Arab Muslims in North Africa helped them and, and, uh, saved, and saved them. But that does not mean that there were not multitudes, there were not multitudes of Arabs in common cause. The Holocaust Museum obstructed uh, um, that move by Sephardic Jews. In the last several years, they have reformed, they've made progress. There is now a page on their website about the Farhood. They are now putting in some information about the Mufti. I believe you launched a complaint. What was your involvement in uh, pressuring the museum to uh, come clean? At the time, I was executive director of the International Sephardic Leadership Council, and I had asked uh, Peter Black, who was, uh, was, I don't know if he still is, um, the chief historian of the Holocaust Museum. No I'd relation, by the way. I uh, went to the Holocaust Museum uh, as a tourist and asked him some questions, and he denied any... Uh, responsibility of the Mufti and uh, the Nazis in North Africa, um, which is just not true. And what I, happened thereafter? There was a protest I, movement against the Holocaust? I called for, I, uh, we sent a press release uh, nationally calling for uh, his firing because the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum refused to speak with us about the topic and uh, basically shut the door on anything relating to the Farhood. You know, the uh, Holocaust Museum's mission statement is about the, the uh, Shoah in Europe. They don't okay. mention anything of the Shoah in North Africa okay. or the Middle okay. East. Okay. And by the way, did anyone in Congress take up your cause? We did. Congressman Elliot Engel uh, came with uh, me to the National Synagogue and uh, basically said on stage, along with Rabbi Avi Weiss, that um, you know he'd work to cut the funding to the Holocaust Museum unless they spoke about this topic. Okay. So now the Holocaust Museum has made strides. I applaud those strides. But just so you understand... All my research at the Holocaust Museum was blocked on the Ustashi. They would, they, um, uh, Andy Hollinger uh, denied me the right to the only institution in the world that denied me the right to speak to their Ustashi expert, uh, their Yugoslavian expert. And um, um, I'm very sad about it. I know that uh, they have refused the people in this room, the survivors in this room, the right to their own records from Bad Arlson. Um, Leo Rector here has been fighting this cause. Our job here is to once again hope that we can move forward progressively with the Holocaust Museum to broaden their point of view and uh, allow, uh, stop, stop their uh, confrontation with survivors, uh, give them their records, and uh, open up their files 
and their experts to anyone, not just me, but anyone who wishes to speak to an expert, uh, because these are very complicated files, should, should be able to uh, do, do so. I'll take a question. It's really not a question, it's a statement, isn't no, it? No, we don't want any, any statements. No, you I must mean, ask a question. I just want to ask you, isn't it an irony that Germany today has such an unbelievable problem with the Arabs? Excuse me? Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. That's not something I'm going to address. It does not have a place in this com conversation. I'm only talking about the Holocaust era. I have a question from you. Okay. Please, history, 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 20th century only. Go ahead. History question. Uh, when you refer to the Nazi machinery was still operating after the official uh, disintegration of the Holocaust to uh, further the Arab movement against the Jews, uh, are you referencing, uh, this is my understanding, that they were the werewolves? Well, you can call them the werewolves, you can call them the, uh, 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 the secret foxes, you can call them the vampires, you can call them whatever you want, but they were in official positions, not unofficial positions. They were running the propaganda movements, they were running the military coordination. Their, name, their first names were Hitler or Adolf or things of that nature. And uh, this generation of Nazis, of doctrinaire Nazis, uh, transferred into the Arab world to create the Middle East that we know today. So, and that is in the book. A question from this side, yeah, please. You draw very clear historical lines between of the Jew hatred in the Middle Eastern world, but you also allude to some positive behaviors and protection of Jews. So I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that so that we can use this maybe also as a foundation for future hope. Sure, I'm happy to. Uh, anyone who wants to say that it's all Arabs or it's all Muslims is totally wrong. They're uh, misinterpreting what I'm saying. I'm talking, I mean, remember, no one has hesitated to document what the Germans did in World War II. Was it every German? No. Uh, was it every Pole? No. What, was, was it every, let me tell you something. Most, most French Jews today are alive because of Frenchmen in France helped save them. That is true. Now, what can we use today? Well, people say to me, is there no hope? How do you defeat 1,400 years of hatred? Listen, there is a peace treaty with Jordan. There's a peace treaty with, with e Egypt. This is called coexistence. And coexistence can lead to peace. So when you come out of here, don't find a reason to amplify what happened in the 20th century. Find a reason to move forward in handshake and brotherhood with Arabs, with Muslims, to look back on the history as they have in South Africa, as they have in Yugoslavia, as they have in Rwanda, and move forward and say, now what can we do from here looking at our honest history? So use the precedent. But you also alluded to uh, actual Arabs who protected Jews back throughout history. Throughout uh, Arab, Arab regimes, depending upon the decade, depending upon the century, depending upon the territory, have alternately massacred the Jews or elevated them to uh, elite no nobility. Mm -hmm. And I try to give the nuances of that in the book. There's a huge legacy 
of uh, neighborliness between Jews and Arabs. But I also had to give the, con course, yeah. the context. Absolutely. I mean, you know what we can say about black people in this country? That black people in this country, they rose, they became great sports stars, they became great jazz guys, but they became great jazz guys and great sports stars within the context of, of the civil rights movement, within the context of being, uh, of being suppressed and uh, being subjected to the cruelest of uh, 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 Jim Crow laws and things of that nature. So yes, were there blacks with plenty of money? Sure, did they have to fight three times as hard to get there? Yes, they did. And so, yes, there were good relations. I'm happy to, to emphasize the good relations. You're saying even in the far hood, though. Even in the far hood, and the book makes this clear, many times a Jewish family was saved by an Arab. In fact, the reason the extermination itself did not go true. It's true thousands of Arabs in Mesopotamia murdered hundreds of Jews. But there were also a few key Arabs who saved it from becoming total extermination. And they are named and they must be recognized Thank and you. not marginalized. A question on this side. How much time do I have left? Fifteen. Okay. I wanted to know if you are invited to speak on this issue to university campuses. The okay. On okay. Campuses. The answer is Columbia, NYU. Okay. The answer is uh, I do about 300 events a year, and I'm doing many events on this topic uh, at universities. I'll be. Um, uh, I have a website called EdwinBlack.com. My uh, schedule is open. I'm not hiding from any from anyone. Uh, you can go to my multi-book tour of 2009-2011, and you will see I have 15 events in South Florida. I've got five or ten events in uh, San Francisco Bay in January and, Febu and February. So I speak as often as possible. But I have to tell you something. There are many people who don't want this message. And not all of these, and some people within the Jewish community itself do not want this message discussed. My challenge is to bring this history out, non, without politics, without, uh, uh, um, uh, polem uh, without polemics, and to use it as a basis for fact and moving forward in brotherhood with our neighbors, not as a, not as a way to fractionalize us. Yes? In my work with you helping you research the book, I, I came to some sort of conclusions on my own. Um, a lot of what went on in the 20th century since Israel's been formed, a lot of the, the negotiations for peace process and, and, negotiate, and also problems that Jews have around the world, everyone say, a lot of people often say, I'm not anti-Jewish, I'm anti-Israel. I'm not anti, I'm, 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 it's anti, as if Israel wasn't there, if Israel wasn't oppressing, Israel wasn't doing that. Your book clearly outlines that the Nazis who claim they're anti-Semitic are actually anti-Jewish because they changed that tone from anti-Semitic to being just anti-Jewish in the end. They just wanted to get rid of the Jews. What do you say to people who, who try to differentiate between being anti-Israel and anti-Jewish in a scheme of things? When you, when you look at the research that you've done in this book and some other books, it becomes only about one thing and one thing only, in my opinion. Well, you are correct, and you were in our research effort and when I say you were in the research effort, you were there 
hour to hour and minute to minute for many, many months as we constantly struggled to document this as fairly and in context as we could from all sides, being careful not to leave anything out. The answer is, it is anti-Jewish, not anti-Zionist. The Jews are in their homeland. So the vocabulary used is anti-Zionist. But decades before, there was a state of Israel in 1948. In 1920 and 1921, decades before that, they were still singing, Palestine is our land, the Jew is our dog. So this does not involve a sudden uh, appearance of, an infra of, uh, uh, of a reactive uh, hatred. You know, I saw a guy come on the John Stewart show, and he was in charge of this boycott against Israel. He said, well, Jews and Arabs have always lived in peace in Palestine. Not a day, not a day, not an hour. If you find one, if anyone finds one, if anyone finds a day, let me know. Did the Jews and Arabs live in peace in Palestine? Either they were dimmies, or they were before 1898, or they were reviled after 1898 for their Zionist cause. And remember, the idea that Jews could not sit down at the wall was kept alive, elevated the Mufti, and became a cause for the whole Muslim world for years and years, and even today, even today, there are efforts to deny the Jews the right to claim the Wailing Wall as their religious place, uh, based on the information I've given you. One more question. Do we have time for one more? A question from this woman here. We're going from left to right. Okay. <laughs> it's never emphasized enough that uh, the Arabs actually didn't discover the oil. They the Arabs they didn't discover the oil, the oil fields. Actually, they were searching for water. All right, uh, let me, uh, who discovered the oil? Uh, since I've written many books on oil, and since I've got another book coming out uh, next month called uh, British Petroleum and the Red Line Agreement, their history, I can tell you this. Oil is older than civilization. The first oil was being used by cavemen in South Africa 60,000 years ago in Blombus. Uh, there was oil in the uh, 1800s uh, in the Middle East, and, but the exploration teams, the industrial oil, the oil with, with the gushers that you know about, this was discovered by the British, uh, the first one in Iraq being in, um, at uh, Baba Gagur, and we have pictures of that in, 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 in my next book. I also wrote a book called Banking on Baghdad in which I explained the whole history of that. So, whether or not the Arabs discovered the oil only reinforces their view that their land was given to someone else to bring a, 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 a non-Islamic presence, a non-Arabic presence into their country, and this has only intensified the uh, jihad. The original jihad against the West was born in 1920. And that's in the book, too. It was not born in, in uh, uh, September 11th. It was born in 1920, and it was a reaction to Jews in Palestine, and it was a reaction to oil companies in uh, Iraq. Is there, uh, one more question. I'll take one more question from this guy. Just a minute. Just a minute. We're waiting for the, for the mic. Don't add a statement. Just ask, add a question, please. What you have said, do you hear me? 
you have said before about Hajj Amin al Husseini. He had an office near uh, Hitler in, in Berlin. That's right. And there was a problem. He, they made him a general, about to make him a general in the SS. They couldn't make him a general because he was a, a Semite. So the problem was solved. He was not an Arab. He was a Turk. And therefore, it was possible to make a general right. in the And what is your question? There's no question. Is, is I'm that a, true? I'm making a statement. Okay. <laughs> All right, fine. Uh, do we have time for one more question? I right, here's a gentleman here who's come. Give us a question. 20th century, please. Uh, you mentioned the renaming. What is, what is your name? Andrew. 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 Marcus. What's up? Um, you mentioned how Iran was changed from Persia to Iran yeah. and how it had roots with indigenous ties to the Nazi party and trying to appeal to Hitler's Nazi party. But how many people in Iran or worldwide acknowledge the roots of this name change and what other factors contributed to it? the creating of the name Iran? The name Iran, when I first brought this out some years ago, in some articles, I was subjected to a massive intimidation campaign, uh, which means nothing. I stood up to IBM so I can stand up to everybody. Um, and um, the name Iran is an ancient name that goes back thousands of years. And the swastika is actually uh, an Iranian or Persian symbol. It, in Indian, I'm talking about in, it is backwards, but it came down through the Indus. Okay, now somewhere in the in the, in the 19th century, there was a. Um, I'd like to make it uh, clear that in in the book we indicate that the. Um, uh, that the roots of the swastika, but you see it in ancient pottery of, 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 of the Iranians. Around the 19th century, there was a mix-up of the words, and the Scandinavians thought that they were the actual Aryans. And this allowed this fake Aryan race cult to exist, which was medicalized by the Rockefeller Foundation and the Carnegie Institution and Henry Ford into the concept of eugenics, which I also wrote a book called War Against the Weak and Nazi Nexus. Does the world recognize this? No. Do you recognize it? Yes. Another question. Yes, ma'am. Just a second. Oh, do you remember by any chance what was the name of that person in uh, Croatia who was... Uh, infamous for having in his office a basket of human eyes. All right. The woman says, do I remember the name of the guy in Croatia who had uh, a basket of eyeballs in his office showing it? Uh, that is referred to on pages 327 and 335. And uh, I don't want to take the time to read it here, but we have his name and we had access to the Eustachi film archives. Um, and uh, he, he showed them off. There was 40 pounds of eyes, of eyeballs. Uh, and now I am out of time. I'll take just one more question. Does anybody have another question? Yes, ma'am, ask your question. Excuse me, you had said that uh, there were a predominant name was Adolf and Hitler. Both names, In the past. Yes. 
And what happened to those names? Did they disappear, or are they Adolf Jr., Hitler Jr.'s? Okay. What happened to all the Arabs and all the Muslims who decided to name their kids uh, Adolf? Well, most of them thought that this is not the best name to have uh, in a post-war period, and they cast off those names. Uh, anyone can change their name uh, like that. And most of them did, but some of them didn't. And the ones that didn't, you can find um, decades later. In fact, uh, I will read to you, if I have a moment, uh, a very unfortunate letter. And this is an imaginary letter written in, um, uh, to Adolf Hitler after he died. And this letter says as follows. Um, it says, Dear Adolf Hitler, uh, uh, I, I wish that you had triumphed. I have the exact text here. I wish that you had triumphed. I, you are the greatest thing that ever happened. And one day you will come back, and I wish the Arab world would have a Hitler too. And that was written to an Egyptian newspaper. And the man who wrote that letter was Anwar Sadat. In fact, I have pictures of Anwar Sadat coming to Jerusalem and his tie is covered with swastikas in Jerusalem. Anyway, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Edwin Black is the author of several books, including IBM and the Holocaust and Internal Combustion, How Corporations and Governments Addicted the World to Oil and Derailed the Alternatives. To find out more, visit his website, edwinblack.com. Visit booktv.org to watch any of the programs you see here online.